This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bishop Fox, the gold standard in software security testing, code reviews, and penetration testing. Visit us at bishopfox.com to learn more about the services we offer and what job opportunities we have available. Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Uh, this will be a podcast of the Ryans. Uh, my guest this week is Ryan Huber security architect at Slack and a guy who's been around for a long time. Um, I spent some time uh, looking up your career, Ryan. Uh, You uh, have a really interesting background coming from uh, the trenches of security in a different time, in a different era. Uh, Can you talk about, just give me a sense of your path into this industry and how you uh, segued into uh, a career in security specific versus, you know, uh, the you started out in, in in the IT space, but how did it veer itself into security? Yeah, happy to, and and thanks again for for having me on. Um, so so actually, I mean, I can go way back to to before the Orbitz days, uh, growing up sort of in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, and uh, my parents purchased, if I remember right, a Packard Bell two eighty six, and I don't know if you remember Packard Bell, but they were terrible machines. Uh, they purchased one of those and they, I, I want to say they bought it in May of that year. And, you know, it was summer vacation and they said, don't touch this thing while we're at work. And of course, you know, the moment they left, I was, I was all over it. And so, you know, I, I back in those days, um, and I'm, I'm quite old, uh, back in those days, computers came with, with manuals that were actually useful. And I still remember uh, the programming manuals that that came with even this this sort of Packard Bell machine, and so uh, from from that age, I, I had an interest in security. Uh, I had I had some good mentors, some good local mentors, and uh, and I actually had a teacher who who regularly challenged me uh, in in ways that were really productive. This is uh, high so school was, days or into college? Uh, this is this is uh, junior high and high school days. Okay, so you 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 had already had a, a a curiosity and interest in things that technical. Yeah, exactly, and um, and so you know, I I remember, I think it was I want to say it was ninety six or ninety seven. I'll probably get the year wrong when uh, when the famous uh, smashing the stack for fun and profit came out. So I would have been sixteen or seventeen years old, and I, I still remember reading it and just. Uh, that kind of opening a door in in thinking about security uh, and and you know really we've come a long way since then um, but but that was kind of a seminal work and I I mentioned it like I don't really give a bio on most of my talks in fact I have a joke slide that's about me and it just says blah 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 no one cares um, but one of the in my bio this year I had mentioned uh, the very first thing I did was actually wrote a a TSR, if you remember DOS TSRs, to steal someone's password, um, mm-hmm. and that was that was back in I think it was uh, Pascal and inline assembly, and this was back in '93 or '94, and then and then I just you know sort of had an interest in security uh, from from that age and moved on and and uh, didn't actually attend college. I went to Chicago when I was 19 or 20 years old, and Orbitz was my first first. I guess you'd say real job. I I did uh, I worked in an ISP in sort of the the central Illinois area as a uh, younger fellow, so 17, 18, 19. And that was really good experience with sort of Unix systems and dealing with lots of users. And then moved to Chicago and uh, did did more systems work 
and and a bit of development, a bit of design, and and I was actually at Orbitz for eleven years, so it was a good good chunk of time. And that was an interesting time as well. That's the early two thousands. We're on a Windows monoculture that had a. Uh, just a myriad of security problems. Microsoft was really, really struggling at the time. We're talking about uh, maybe even pre-XP. Uh, you know, a firewall in XP didn't come in to, until Service Pack 2, and then we went through, you know, all the mitigations that Microsoft built and all the, but, you know, all the the improvements in the, in the Windows platform. But in the early 2000s, you're at Orbitz, huge company at the time, uh, powering uh, travel. Uh in that period, can you talk a little bit about like how that that ecosystem? We we're in this Windows world that was largely insecure. We're heading into the warm era, Blaster, Sasser, and all these things. How how different was that landscape and trying to protect the infrastructure or or even protect the the organization from external threats? Different from where you are today. Again, in a very large company. Uh, almost, I would. Some people would argue Slack is on the on the cusp of being almost a, like a business utility. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How, how different is life uh, from that time to now? Uh, it, you know, when I when I think back to it, it, it's 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 inconceivable that we got to where we are today. And I'm not saying we're in a great place today, but it's in, it, it's almost inconceivable we got from from where we were because back. So I started at Orbitz. I want to say it was December of 2000 or January of 2001, somewhere around there. And, and I don't know, like uh, as a bit of a history thing, and that's when all the dot-coms were folding. It was and 2001, I still, by the way. It was January 2001. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember I moved there and a friend of mine was working for Chicago.com. And, and then I saw a lot of friends sort of jobs disappearing. And I thought, oh, this Orbitz thing is another one of those. So I guess I'll do that for six months and then I'll end up at a bank doing, you know, Unix systems like everyone else that I know. And and I was really surprised that it that it took off. And and so back then, I don't believe when I started at Orbitz, there was a dedicated security team of any type, right? I think I think back then you had, you know, large banks and and people that had sort of a good understanding of risk. Had had security departments, and I'm not even sure what they did. Right, I wasn't part of that culture. But right, and this yeah. is pre-automatic updating days. This is patch management is a complete mess. You have no idea when a patch is coming. You have no automated tools to do any of this. So it it's really startling to me how we were protecting critical systems uh, back then when you compare it to what's available today. And, you know, in security, we tend to, security folks tend to have this pessimistic mindset that everything is broken, everything is owned, there's no way we can fix all of this. But a lot of people don't look back at the early 2000s where we were and where we are today in terms of, like, the dramatic improvements of platforms and tools and the ability to at least protect yourself versus back then. And and I'm guessing back then at Orbitz, if you imagine yourself back then now, knowing what you know now, that it would be an almost impossible task. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I, I remember the types of security issues we ran across, right? I mean, this is this is back in the days when when NetFlow was a slightly more useful tool to, to detect things. And, and you might, um, Snort came a little bit it, around that time period, but, you right. know, you kind of used classic IDS and all that. But I, I remember, you know, an incident where, somebody's laptop, somebody that, that used IRC 
they had picked up some sort of worm via IRC that just sort of uh, wormed through our network and slowed everything down. And I, I don't even remember, it wasn't one of the big names, but I, I still remember it just sort of hopped around our corporate network and infected every Windows system, right? And the cleanup for that even was sort of, I guess it's up to you to figure it out. Yeah, it's you know, hodgepodge of manual, manual running from machine to machine. And uh, uh, it, it was a completely a crazy time. And I think, I think uh, uh, defenders take a bad rap today in terms of, you know, what has already been built and how far we've advanced. Uh, there's an interesting discussion going on on Twitter now about whether innovations in security introduce more risk uh, than it fixes just because of how things are complex and, you know, people are still on legacy systems and trying to get newer technologies to talk to those systems or a complete mess. I'm not saying, you know, we are, we are in a perfect place, but it seems to me, and I've been covering as a journalist covering security since 1999, having lived through all these years of the things you talked about. I mean, we are in a far, far better place today than we were back then. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, I think a lot of that you know, a lot of my optimism in security today comes from the shifting attitudes of what what matters in security, right? So, um, you know, I I, uh, I obviously started like like many people as a more offensively minded person because that that was the fun thing to do, right? And and you know, as as I got older, I I really became interested in in the defensive side of things, and I think I think we're now seeing a lot of developers and operations people that that have a decent you know base level understanding of security that just did not exist back then and i think that's a really really good thing to see how much um you you mentioned you don't help me understand what you do at slack i'm just it'll help me frame my questions Uh, are, (laughs) are you are you um is your work focused on product security or is your work focused on protecting the company uh, from say external threats or protecting your infrastructure? So it's, it's a bit of both really. Um, I, I was actually the, the first security person at Slack back when it was 50 ish people. And, and my title back then was just security. Um, you know, it was, it was a bit, of, I, I used to manage some of the bug bounty stuff. So I did product security. I actually used to write web app code and, and patch things. And, uh, and then I, I sort of shifted into uh, the role of, of SecOps, which is one of those terms that's kind of overloaded now. But, but in our version of SecOps, we, we run a separate environment that is sort of the secure environment where we do some of the more interesting security work, but we keep that separate. Like it's a separate AWS account, that kind of stuff. And, we, um, and so we actually ran our own infrastructure, but also... SecOps at Slack develops a good number of tools that we use. So it's, it's definitely a case where if somebody has made something useful, we definitely want, we prefer that, but we've actually written a good amount of code to support our efforts in SecOps. And, and I'd say my role today, I was, I was the SecOps manager until January of this year. And, and then I shifted into a remote role as security architect. And I think, I think broadly my, my function is, is sort of, half, you know, consultant, uh, just somebody who knows security and, and you can ask questions to. And then uh, a good amount of it is still development and, and just general thinking about what infrastructure security looks like and, and in some cases product security as well. 
right? I mentioned earlier that I believe, or I believe an argument can be made that Slack is uh, bordering on being a utility. Uh, you know, it's been standardized in large organizations. It's kind of replaced all the internal messaging tools, uh, but that comes with its own set of problems. But I wanted to ask, do you view Slack as, um, when you think of the threat model for Slack, are you, uh, are the nation state adversaries and some of the quote unquote sophisticated attackers uh, within your threat model? Yeah, they definitely are. I think I think they they have to be when you're dealing with such a broad group of people in communication. So it definitely factors into your thinking, right? Um, but overall, you know, our, our mindset, our defensive mindset, and you, you mentioned you'd, you'd watch some of the presentations I've done. A lot of it's modeled around sort of the, the hardest cases. And, and I still think, you know, malicious insider is one of the most difficult cases, even rivaling nation state in, in some instances. And so, you know, the defensive mindset we take is we're not, I'd say we, we think about these things, but we're not targeting a particular adversary when we think defensively, we're just, we're just sort of uh, thinking about how somebody might abuse our internal systems and ways that we might detect that activity, regardless of, of sort of the method they use to gain access initially. Right. What, and and I, I'll tell you why I asked this question. One of the most fascinating talk, talks I saw in a while, and I'm really surprised it didn't get as much play as possible, was uh, Rob Joyce, NSA's Rob Joyce, at uh, I think it was the Enigma Conference, talked about, you know, how uh, the NSA or a really advanced adversary thinks about uh, uh, thinks about offense. And one of the things he mentioned that really fascinated me was that the, the adversary knows more about your network, the target network, and even the products you use, uh, they know it even better than you and even the people that made those products. And that's a scary thought. It suggests to me that if an advanced adversary at the nation state level wants to get into your network, you have no chance. Is that fair? And and isn't that a scary thought? Um, it, it, so I don't know if you if you saw, but I've actually recommended that Rob Joyce talk in nearly every talk I've done in the past few it's, years. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like mandatory it's, listening. Yeah. Had you seen it before? before I had seen recently? it before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it um, the first time it went up on YouTube. A buddy of mine sent it to me and says, no chance. We have no chance um, <laughs> because these guys are, you know, well resourced. They have as much money to throw at the problem as possible. They have guys just focused entirely on just looking at this make and model of this specific router. Like, how do you defend yourself against an adversary with that kind of resources and that kind of uh, motivation? Yeah. So I think you know, um, I think I think Rob Joyce actually kind of ended that on an optimistic note. And, and part of it was, you know, understand your systems, right? Because I don't think a lot of a lot of folks have invested the time to understand what their infrastructure looks like. And actually, you know, a lot of a lot of the time, you know, the way that they would find a, a backdoor in was just some forgotten system, right? Like this thing it happens to be some in, in some VPC, but has ports open, and, and maybe they open it for debugging for an external vendor, and they just wait for that and you know hop in. But I think I think one of the points that I really liked from that talk is that he basically said we don't need zero day exploits to break into your network, right? We just we just have really smart people who understand computers and networks, and and you know we find a foothold some other way. We don't have to burn uh, an exploit to get into your network in in the majority of cases. Correct. And, and if so, you read the DBIR, that validates it. 
like the data in the DBIR, the Verizon DBIR report validates this. Yes. No one is using zero day. It's the basic phishing. It's the basic getting people to click on something. And it's some misconfigured AWS somewhere or some misconfigured something somewhere in your network that caused this. Exactly. And and I think there's, you know, that end day thing, like, you know, an exploit's been around for a little while, but nobody's bothered to patch for it. I mean, those are extremely valuable. There's, uh, I think it's called this, I, I, I wish I could recite the person that gave this talk, but there's, there's something, I think it might've been Alex Hutton that mentioned the security Mendoza line and, and how once something hits Metasploit, you know, now it's just generally available in a way that, that makes it much more dangerous. But you'll see and even even in those cases people haven't patched for it right and so if if you're not thinking about patching systems you're you're in kind of a bad state to begin with um but but you know i think i think our philosophy on security is there there's no such thing as perfectly patching your systems there's no such thing as uh perfectly secure software right there will always be bugs and so you know where we focus our efforts is detection along along the path that that an attacker might take when they've when they've gained a foothold. So you know I I think some people refer to this as assume compromise. That that even feels a bit pessimistic to me. Right, but, but it's but but it's reality. Yeah, yeah, I, and and I agree that that you know any decent attacker. I mean when you when you look at the size of an engineering org versus a security org in most companies it's nearly impossible to keep up. And so, you know, I think looking at the effects of, of a compromise is extremely valuable. And, you know, one of the things we, we really focus on is keeping the rule sets that we use to look at the, the huge amount of data we collect, security data we collect. We keep those rules as sort of the only bit of, of uh, secret sauce in in the system. So you know, in in the talks, I've I've spoken about Go Audit, which is something we use to record all the syscalls uh, across all of our Unix boxes, and we send those, we stream those off constantly, right? We stream those off, and and nothing about what we detect is running on an individual host. And what that allows us to do is pipe that data somewhere else, and then analyze it there, and write our rules there. And the issue with that is, you know, if if somebody gets in and trips over one of those rules, you know, we have a chance to evict them from the system. And, and the fact that those rules are invisible to the attacker, actually, uh, Haroon Mir did a really good talk about honeypots in, in 2015 or 16 at Black Hat. And he sort of showed the asymmetry of attack, right? Where the, it's, you know, the attacker can see the entire chessboard, you can only see your half. And, and this sort of turns the tables on that a little bit because you know, you're raising attacker cost when they can't see exactly what you're detecting on. And, and so this has kind of been our philosophy is, you know, the, the rules that you use to detect should be, should be customized to your environment, but should also be kind of kept as, a, as one of the top tier things that, that you don't allow people to see. Right. It's funny you mentioned Harun Mir. Uh, actually, the highlight of RSA was getting a demo of Canary Tools um, from Harun on the show floor there. And, uh, it's really fascinating that in this assume compromise world, the notion of like you just talked about, but just you know setting up sensors and setting up alarm systems within your organization is is a really really crucial part of this uh, visibility into this uh, in this assume compromise world where you you'll you'll be able to get an alert and he's now building the ability to push alerts even to Slack. Um, 
and and that's kind of where we're going. But you know, one of the things from the Rob Joyce talk that 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 resonated with me is this. Uh, the importance of blocking and tackling on the basics. That's what I call it, like uh, blocking and tackling on the basics versus, you know, paying attention to these sophisticated hackers. And I'm curious in your organization, what what percentage of your security team's work is just heavily focused on, you know, patch management, uh, making sure things are properly configured? Uh, You'll never get users to not click on on attachments or not click on malicious links. How do you deal uh, with the reality that you know your 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 employees your marketing departments will have to click on pdfs and click on things what percentage yeah. what you know how do you how do you determine as a, as a team to segment those resources so it's 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 obviously hard to quantify but i would say i would say the va- the vast majority of our efforts are focused on low hanging fruit or you know some would call it just security hygiene Right. Making right, sure that basics. you're doing the basics and, and just making sure that you're not, you know, uh, again, you, you cited the DBIR earlier and, and most of the attacks that most of the breaches don't come out of some advanced attack. They come out of something that in hindsight, that company sits back and goes, well, yeah, obviously that's how they got in. Right. And, you know, to me, that's that's the that's the case that you want to target until you run out of those sort of security hygiene things to go after. I mean, you, you obviously want to develop your program to be, um, to have some capability to detect more advanced things as well, right? So it, it's important to not only patch, but have this sort of detection capability. But, but I completely agree with the thought that, you know, patching and just the low level stuff uh, is, is as important, is more important than targeting, you know, the advanced adversary that, that, uh, is the one in a thousand. And I can guarantee you that this conversation is happening in every security department everywhere, yet on a daily basis there are breaches that happen because people haven't gotten the basics right. Why is it so hard to get the basics right? Like the basics, just patching. Let's just focus on just patching the low-hanging fruit. Now you're, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, fancy-schmancy tools to detect zero days and all that stuff. I'm talking about just patching basic everyday stuff why I think that's so hard. So, you know, I, this is all just speculation for me. Right. But I'm, I'm just going to say that uh, patching is boring. Right. That's that's one major issue in a lot of organizations is nobody. Nobody wants to be in charge of patching. Right. Nobody. I, you, you may run across people that are really uh, that are that are really interested in in Windows systems or, you know, general systems and keeping things running and, and all of that. But in a lot of organizations, it can actually be quite hard to hire good internal ops people, right? Most most people that want to do ops work or DevOps work want to do that for the the externally facing part of an organization. So, you know, I, I'd assume that that at most major Silicon Valley companies, the SREs or the ops people at, at a Google or a Facebook or whatever, you know, they're they're the top tier SREs you're going to find. And and as you uh, start thinking about internal systems that that aren't externally facing and and you know involve patching Windows systems and and maybe patching, like I said, that Avaya phone server or whatever. I mean, there there are just less people interested in doing that job. And so you have to find people that are really that really want to keep up with. Um, with patching in a useful way. And I, I, as you mentioned, like in the early 2000s, 
we didn't even have this these sort of automated you know windows update any of this right, right. the browser and browsers are now patching themselves a lot of applications have their own auto updater software updaters that introduces a whole other conversation about security problems that those introduce but we've come a long way from those days but if i'm a CISO and someone said to me yeah, the reason we don't have patching uh down to a science is because it's boring and hard to find the right people to want to do that job. That's a scary place for a CISO to be. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And and so so the other reason um, that I think patching is historically difficult is the the issue of breaking changes in updates. Right. You you have some assurance in in. Things like Debian, right? Like they they backport patches. They 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 support things for an extended period of time, but often you know a patch means that you have to be on the latest version of something. And some some companies have drifted so far off of current that they have to do a huge amount of work just to catch up to whatever the current release of of software is. Mm -hmm. And and that only compounds over time. And so this is this is one area where the the whole devops mindset of of release often i think has has helped to improve security right because if you i had a conversation about this the other day with someone you know back in back in the orbits days we used to do two every two weeks a release and we do it at let's call it 3 or 4 a.m uh central time and the reason you did that is you took the whole site offline you did this massive change set and then hoped everything worked and brought it back online and maybe rolled it back if something was broken. And now we, you know, a company like Slack, I, I want to say we do on the order of a hundred releases a, a day, right? Like developer makes changes, gets reviewed, maybe gets a security review if it's security critical, and then that goes out. And the, the, that means you're doing a lot of small changes versus, you know, these, these enormous scary changes. And I think that that style has really helped us keep up with current releases of software and underlying software in a way that's that's useful to security. And this might be the right time to plug your latest uh, release. You guys just released an SDL, an internal SDL tool you use uh, that handles your build process internally. Talk a little bit about what this tool is and why it's useful. So the this is a tool that internally has been around for for a little while, and uh, what's what's nice about it is it's it's a very lightweight SDL. Right. So the the folks that work on it in ProdSec, they they thought through, you know, how to be how to be as low friction as possible, but have developers thinking about security concerns when they're creating a new feature. And so, you know, the way this works is it's it's mostly self-service. It's sort of like a those old choose your own adventure books. Like you click on it, it, you know, it, it might branch into this or that. But the, the thought was it shouldn't take very long for a developer to go through, answer the, the basic SDL questions about, you know, what is customer data affected, is, you know, what systems interact, that kind of thing. And, and it's, just, it's just a really good framework that gets you set up for the, the conversations you need to have. And it's one of those tools that acts as an amplifier of the security team's efforts, because if you imagine trying to put someone from product security in every single feature meeting. I mean, it, that doesn't scale it at most organizations, I'd imagine. Whereas if you make this, this really simple SDL part of the process, you're sort of front loading some of that work. And, and also at the same time, you have the added benefit that the developers are thinking about these things in ways that they may not have initially. 
Uh, I want to just go back to uh, a topic you mentioned, uh, the boredom of patching and just the the, the uh, overload. And I want to talk about burnout and fatigue insecurity. I imagine a guy in your position or a CISO or, you know, a CISO in a fast moving organization wakes up every morning with, you know, some some level of an internal stomach pain or maybe a sense of anguish uh is that fair uh, or am i imagining things like how do you cope with breach news every day all day disclosures everywhere and you know all this noise in the press and you have this thought like holy crap you know we haven't really patched this thing yet or we're still focused on getting this piece right uh does that is 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 it fair uh, for, for someone like me from the outside to look in and see uh, that there has to be some sort of mental anguish and burnout and fatigue from dealing with this on an everyday basis. Is is, is that a thing? So it's it's definitely a thing. Um, personally, I'm I I guess I class myself as as a bit of an optimist, uh, but I, I definitely have those periods of of dread where you 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 maybe see a thread of something interesting and you know immediately assume the worst. Uh, but I but I really try and avoid that in in most cases. The the I think I think the burnout and security thing often comes from being part of a team that isn't isn't really empowered to do good security work. It, th this again gets into the historical conversations around security, where security uh, used to be the team of no, right? Like you come to them and they're like, no, that's Absolutely. a terrible idea, never do that. And one of one of my favorite talks in recent history was. Uh, Zane Lackey has done uh, his modern security, building a modern security team, I believe it's called. Um, and, and that's a really good talk about, you know, how to, how to actually be a partner to all of these other parts of the organization and, and really uh, become a, a trusted member of the, the business, right? So the thing, that, the thing that some security people lose sight of is that no business outside of the security industry no business exists to be security, right? They they exist to do to have some to do business, right? Exactly, and and so you know, I think I think one thing that helps with burnout is is understanding risk and thinking about the fact that you know maybe this is an interesting problem, but it's not the most pressing problem that we have, and and prioritization of work has to happen. Uh, across the organization in ways that are not just security focused, you also have to be, you know, competitive in, in your industry. And so um, I think I think burnout is definitely an issue that that also comes from that that team of no, just just sort of being ignored. Right. And that's the state you don't want to end up in is uh, is other teams avoiding you. So I think I think more than than some other teams, you actually have to be really nice in your interactions with the rest of the organization. You want to be a welcoming presence and you, you really just want to want to be there to, to guide them in the right direction because most of these folks are, are smart people, right? The, the people that are writing code are, you know, one of the things that I, I can't stand is when somebody throws up their hands and says, oh, this idiot did X or Y. Like, no, they're, they're, they didn't know that it might have caught, that it might be a security issue. But they assume best intentions. I mean, they were working on something and, and you know, maybe introduced a vulnerability. But go talk to them and be a consultant to them. Don't, don't just, you know, throw your hands up and, and admit defeat.
Yeah, that's easy to do. But let me, let me, I, I can flip this uh, theme of no thing. You can flip the script entirely where you have, and, and this is a reality in a lot of organizations like yours, where you have this disconnect between what the security guys would like and you get the no's from management and what the business needs are. And I'll give you an example, end-to-end encryption in messaging. We've seen, you know, an example, Twitter. Charlie Miller has been public on, um, uh, 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 publicly talking about you know, his efforts to add end-to-end encryption and direct messages in, in Twitter, but getting pushback from management. We've had Alex Stamos at Facebook trying to do the right thing, at least from public reports, trying to do the right thing, but running into, uh, you know, interference from management. How, when this flip is, when the script is flipped and the team of no is now management saying something like end-to-end encryption is pretty cool from a security perspective, but from a business perspective, we want to be able to do our analytics on the data passing through as a business, as a, a, a put, attach a business model to that. How do you, as a security guy, navigate that world when you're no longer the team of no, you want to do the right thing, end-to-end encryption is the right thing, but it doesn't mesh with what the organization wants. That's a tricky place to be. Yeah, it's absolutely a tricky place to be. And I think, I think, those are the conversations that, you know, when when you flag something as important like that, I mean, you you have to be persistent without being a jerk, right? That's that's really the only way to to deal with uh, with those those types of, of scenarios because, you know, the obviously management probably in in a lot of these cases one also also just is thinking about the cost associated with adding these features and et cetera, et cetera. And you, you just want to be mindful of, of where they are and make sure that, you know, you're not, you're not pushing uh, sort of an agenda on what, what you think is right for the organization, because I mean, their job is to know broadly what, what the teams should be working on, but your job is to be a champion of those ideas, right? You should be out there advocating for it and, and, and I would strongly encourage people to be persistent when they're advocating for features they think are extremely important. But sometimes you're told no, and that's that's just sort of the reality of of uh, how most businesses operate. So you know, if you if you take that no and turn it into a negative and and give up, I think that that's sort of the wrong way to go. I think you just have to continue to make your case. And one thing that that can really help is thinking about ways to reduce the the resources required to achieve some of these things right right but when you, these things sorry sorry to interrupt but when these things oh, act, no when these things actually affect business models uh, we, and 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 the, the examples are starting to pop up significantly uh, Jan Coons at WhatsApp is, has quit over, you know, pu- public reports over disagreement with management about how they want to handle data passing through WhatsApp. Stamos at Facebook, uh, you know, I've, we've, we've seen the Twitter examples. These things are starting to pop up where security guys are taking a stand and saying, no, I'm not going to, you know, I, I'm going to advocate and I'm going to advocate. And if, 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 it, if it really affects what I really, really believe in, I'm just going to go a different direction. Uh, and, 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 you know, guys like you are, are, I imagine as an outsider, guys like you are in that position where you, you really want to drive forward on something that is crucial and important uh, from a security perspective and you get that no or you get that pushback and it becomes this ongoing battle. It, does that lead to, again, this fatigue issue where you just throw your hands up in the air and say, I can't believe we can't, uh, I can't have end-to-end encryption? I, I think, you know, I think it definitely can be frustrating, but... 
at the same time, you know, if there's pushback on any general security idea, what I what I usually do is go find the next best thing to work on and and just revisit these ideas because I you know I, you you can definitely um, take a stand and whatever the saying is this being one's hill to die on right and right. I, I think that's important in a lot of cases that you just say you know this we we're we're good at almost everything and this really bugs me and I can't continue to um, to try and sell it when. You know, I'd imagine in a lot of those cases, the reasons behind why they're not doing it are what drive these people to to sort of say, well, I, I don't think this is ever going to happen. Right. And and that, you know, a, a, a final no on something like that is is quite different than a not right now. Um, and so, you know, right, I, right. I, I don't I'm not privy to any of the conversations happening at these these companies. And, and it would be extremely interesting to know, you know, what those conversations were, but I, you know, I don't have any particular insight into it. And I imagine it, it's a, a combination of communication within teams, respect within the organization and just, you know, not living, not having the security team live in a silo from the business team and just f- getting both sides to fully understand uh, the positions that help you cope with the fatigue and the frustrations, uh, uh, that mature organizations that have this level of communication where you fully understand where they're coming from and they fully understand where you're coming from, it's easier to navigate the frustrations. Absolutely. And, I, you know, that mutual respect uh, between security and the rest of the organization, I, I would I would say is is a more modern thing, right? Again, like security teams were the outlier group in a lot of organizations for years. They were the the weird people who sit in the corner in the dark corner and, you know, do whatever. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, we've seen a shift where security that's, that's done well is really similar to just good engineering. Right. And so, so there's in a lot of cases, there's a lot of, there's common ground between, you know, the security organization at, at a modern company and the general engineering organization such that, you know, it, in our case, like we've had people move between developing for completely separate areas of Slack into security development, right? And, and vice versa. And that mobility is great because if somebody, if somebody comes from outside and joins security, they're going to bring a skill set that, you know, like development or operational knowledge that, that a lot of security people historically haven't had. And so, you know, the, the people in the security organization can, can, can learn a lot from them and vice versa. And I, I, I'm kind of a broken record internally with this, but my favorite people to hire for security are developers and operations people who have an interest in security as opposed to, you know, the classical, uh, what we think of as security person, which I think is, is quite rare at this point. I think most security people understand development uh, pretty well and, and operations pretty well. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think having that common ground with the rest of the organization is important because historically we were, you know, security teams were just a very different beast than, than the rest of the business. And I think that that meant it was harder to communicate as well. Yeah, that's a great point. I heard Thomas Ptacek on the podcast uh, not too long ago talking about uh, in the pen test uh, uh, war, looking for talent among gamers, uh, game developers. Uh, because sure. they, you know, they have that mindset already. Game developers uh, are largely bored, and it, it it's a really sexy space for them to come in. And I think that 
mindset of looking beyond just a traditional security guy to find talent and to find people to be motivated to tackle these hard problems is is really fascinating and interesting to me. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot quite put you on the spot but um I, you know we're talking about end to end encryption I believe Slack is doing encryption data at rest and data in transit. Uh can we make some news are you guys going to implement end to end encryption at some point? <laughs> um I have nothing to share on that front unfortunately. I I uh I really like I imagine my- it's a big ask. <laughs> I, mean, I imagine it's a big ask for big customers though. Um yeah, some customers. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously uh top of mind for some people and and less for others, but I I actually don't know you know what what percentage of customers would are asking for that feature versus other features or anything like that. Um but I also, you know, I think I think we trust the the product teams to know what those customer asks are and and really target them. Uh, uh quickly, uh, you have used uh, a bug bounty programs in addition to traditional security assessment, pen testing, going the the expert route to get it. Uh, what can you walk me through the thinking behind um, what you're relying on bug bounties to help you uh, uh, flag and pinpoint versus uh, what you're going to traditional security assessment pen testing forms for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of my one of my favorite things about bug bounties is the the breadth of people that you're exposed to who participate in the bug bounty. So the way the way I've explained it to to folks is when you when you do a pen test, you're assigned you know two, three, four consultants from a firm, and they're probably really good at at certain things, or maybe they're broadly good at at many things. When you when you have a bug bounty program, you often have very specific skill sets among a, a large number of people and what's great about that is you know I, I remember when I started uh, there was somebody who found just a good number of, of uh, XSS in our unfurling right and it was it was this person that had never participated in a bug bounty before and uh, his name's actually Dan Lechemont, I think he, he he's over at uh, he was at Trello and he's just really good at javascript like he comes from a development background and he he started poking at things through the bug bounty program and you know because of his extensive knowledge of javascript he he was able to find some really good bugs in fact if i remember right he's the only he i think he's the only person or maybe there are two now that has received the the top award that hacker one pays out for their own website Right, so he found he found a, a top level vulnerability in Hacker One, the platform, right. and reported that. So, you know, this is this is a case where uh, that person probably would have m- maybe would have poked it at, at our stuff, whatever. But there wasn't a mechanism to reward them for that. And so, bug bounties are great because you know you have the person that's the JavaScript person, you have the person that is the um, let's call it the the. Uh, thick client person, you know, whatever that you have all these different people poking at the the bits they're, they're good at. And, and really it's hard to replicate that in a traditional pen test. I mean, you just need so many diverse sets of talent to do that. And you're time boxed in a way that you're not with an ongoing bug bounty. So, right, but so I would, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, is there a flip to that where there are things you need the traditional pen test security assessment firms to do that you can't get from bug bounties, for you can't get from the crowd? 
Uh, absolutely. So, so like, <laughs> so I'm just trying to understand if, 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 if someone in a startup is listening to you and trying to, you know, modify their thinking about what my needs are and how to spread my resources, uh, is it important to have both? Uh, is there some things one can't do that the other you can rely on? Uh, I would say absolutely. So the, the thing that you can do with traditional pen tests that you might not, that you, that you almost certainly wouldn't do with a bug bounty is is to give them a head start on on access to internal systems, right? So, so that gets a little bit more into the red team type of scenario with right. pen testing. But you're obviously not going to post, you know, valid developer credentials. Well, not intentionally uh, on on the internet and just say, okay, bug bounty, you know, go right? after this. Um, that that model is probably fraught with peril. And that's an important part of it though, where you give you give a pen test a credential so you can see what's, again, this uh, uh, assume compromise world where you see if someone has credentials to X, what can he do within a network? What kind of lateral movement can happen? That's a crucial part of your posture. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, that, that model, like when we do uh, pen tests to red teams with a firm, I'm a I'm a big proponent of give them, you know, a real developer account or even mirror a real developer's account, and and don't worry about getting those developers' credentials because it it's all too easy in most cases in most organizations to do that. So you know why why spend time proving that phishing works? Just assume that phishing works and then move on from there and and figure out what it looks like you know, when you assume that level of compromise. And so I, I, I spoke with, uh, it's been a while ago, but I spoke with Ryan McGeehan, uh, who, who used to work at Facebook about this, another Ryan in security. Yeah, I need, I need <laughs> to have a podcast of the Ryans. I have him on my list. Oh, great. Yeah, he's, he's an excellent person. So I, I spoke with him about, you know, how they handle these sorts of engagements. And one thing they would do is, is just sort of uh, have this break class where, okay, you spent X amount of time, you have this level of access, you didn't get far enough, so break glass, move on to the next uh, next layer, if you will, and, and go from there because you still want to maximize uh, the, the effort. You don't want them to stall on something that, you know, in the post you can look at it and go, oh, if they had just discovered this one little thing, they would have gotten right past this, right? So, so I think preloading them with information is extremely valuable. And I think, again, that's an area where uh, with a traditional bug bounty, it's, it's a bit harder to do just because, you know, there can be some amount of anonymity, whatever, um, versus, you know, you sign a contract with a company to do a pen test. Right. One of the things I'm hearing and learning as well is that there's a there's a there's a cost transfer mechanism that are, that you have to apply to bug bounties as well, where uh, you know just having resources in place to deal with triaging bugs coming in from bug bounties. Uh, a big problem. I I actually was involved in set organizing and setting up the bug bounty program at Kaspersky Lab when I was there, and mm -hmm. the amount of out of scope stuff that we were getting um, that that were not what we were looking for, uh, was out of scope for our bug bounty program, but we still had to deal with it. And you still had to assign resources that you weren't that you didn't initially plan for. And that cost transfer was something that was startling to us where you get a ton of uh, bugs out of scope, small things that you still have to fix, uh, but it's out of scope and you didn't properly prepare for that. Uh, is it, something that I'm hearing a lot of companies are, 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 are struggling to deal with. 
And, you know, Kate yeah, Missouris think... and these guys always talk about making sure, you know, a bug bounty program is not for everyone. Like, you literally have to have your ducks in a row and, and really be prepared for all those incidental things that you didn't plan for. Is that yeah, I, your experience? I, I 100% agree. I mean, if you, if you just join a bug bounty program, flip the switch, and then, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. I, I think you're going to have a pretty rude awakening on, on what it actually means. Oh, within and, days. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, one of the things, I mean, I, as I mentioned, I was the first security person. So I used to triage every single bug bounty request, right? Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's the worst that's job a, in the world. <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't bad because occasionally, like I mentioned, the person from Trello, like that interaction was actually really positive and I really enjoyed it. Um, but then you you get in some cases where, you know, there'd be an argument and whatever. And 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 really, the, I mean, there's an emotional toll in some of these interactions where it, where it can be quite difficult. But right. And then they get on a Slack channel and, and, and bitch about your your response. <laughs> but but I think I think most people are, are coming from a from a good place, at least that I've dealt with. And so one of the first things I want to say before before we even hire the second security person, I took a look at the number of bugs, I actually, I'm, I'm terrible at spreadsheets, but I made a spreadsheet uh, with uh, the sort of the number of bugs that, we, that I dealt with in a given week, and then talked to external firms about triage and what they would charge us to have a team triaging these on our behalf. And, and the cost worked out, I mean, just on a cost basis, having them triage the bugs was cheaper than hiring a full engineer to do this. And on top of that, but the engineer that you would hire to do that is absolutely going to burn out, right? Like you, there is no way that person stays for, for more than a year. So outsourcing that first tier triage was really important to me because even I was starting to, to get a lot of fatigue around this and, and having uh, a third party look at these bugs has another really distinct advantage. They, they often know the people involved in the program, right? Because they're doing this for multiple companies. And so they have their own sort of uh, automatic filtering of, oh, this person usually reports, you know, really interesting things. This person maybe less so. And so, uh, so they're actually better, you know, at triage in some cases than, than, uh, than you can be individually. So, you know, I, I, think that, I think that that model works quite well. And once you get that level of triage, I, you know, just ballpark, but I, I think maybe 10% of submissions are what actually make it past triage. And, and I've heard that number repeated uh, at a lot experience? of organizations. That's your experience as well? Yes, yeah, yeah I'd say, and, and I haven't done a lot with the bug bounty in the past year or two, but but that that historically was my experience as well. You guys got, uh, uh, at least from, from what I saw publicly, two really good bugs from bug bounty program. There was the Franz Rosen uh, thing. It was, I believe, a configuration flaw in how you guys were, uh, how Slack was communicating with other domains. Pretty significant bug that came through bug bounties. And, yep. then, and then my favorite was a, a guy who figured out how to mess with uh, support tickets. Um, if I, I don't remember uh, the guy's name, but he was uh, messing with the way support tickets were sending emails with certain URLs and allowed him to uh, manipulate things and get into Slack channels where we saw passwords being pasted and so on. It wasn't necessarily a bug in Slack, but you you ended up fixing it because it it, it affected you. 
Yeah, uh, and, and Franz, Franz is, is somebody that uh, that I've had the chance to hang out with in person a couple of times. And, yeah, I met him at Black House. He's a really <laughs> interesting guy. Yeah, he and and again, uh, I don't know if you know his background, but he's he's also a developer who sort of went into this this realm, right? So so he started his career doing development, and um, and he's also just a generally personable, nice guy. Like we we had a great time hanging out. Uh, I think it was actually at Black Hat a few years ago as well that that we hung out for the first time, and he's the he's the the kind of person that again bug bounty exposes you to, and I think that's a really positive thing. Would you say, in a general sense, uh, the quality of findings you're getting from Bug Bounty is on par with what you're getting from professional uh, pen tester security assessment forms, or is there is there like a noticeable uh, 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 value of quality from each? It, it's it's really difficult. I mean, I you know, as as we were kind of discussing earlier, I think they've they've really diverged in what what they're useful for in a way that makes them hard to compare. It's a little bit apples, oranges to me. Um, the, the thing I'll say about, about traditional pen tests is, you know, the, the requirements they have are often to produce, I mean, it, basically at the end of most of these, it's produce a report, right? And so it, it, it can be hard if one of those professional firms is time box, they want to show a value. And that, I think that puts them in a difficult position where, you know, okay, we have two weeks to do this or three weeks or whatever it is for the engagement. So let's, let's really focus, hyper-focus on an area that, um, that maybe isn't the most important area. And, and the, the other issue is, you know, prioritization of bugs is a bit subjective. If you're a pen testing firm and you haven't found a, what, what someone would call a higher critical bug, it, it's, you know, that, that can be diff- that's a difficult position to be in. Right. So um, the concerns are just really different. Whereas bug bounty, I mean, it's effectively you have this this group of people on the Internet that have unlimited time. And the thing that's great about that is that mirrors, you know, what real attackers look like. I mean, attackers don't have unlimited time, but there's no limit on the number of people that are trying things. And so that's what I really enjoy about bug bounty is it, it mimics the real world in a useful way. Do you get a sense that guys like you in organizations are now moving away from this time boxed uh, pen test model into more of like a continuous assessment uh, uh, model where you you put the professionals uh, to look at things the one the things you can't do with bug bounties like we discussed earlier you know giving them uh, credentials on certain levels of access doing you, do you find more organizations are doing this on a continuous basis to get around that uh, fixed time boxed uh, constraint? I, I think so. There, there's a couple areas that are hard to replicate, though. So one of them is a lot of customers, especially enterprise customers, want to see that pen test report, right? Right. It's, so you have- it's one of those things that's been around forever. And so much like PCI and blah, blah, you know, all these regulatory domains, like it becomes a customer requirement, a right? Yeah. And so, so, you know, I mean, traditional pen tests aren't going anywhere. I think, I think even just in the, the, the few years I've been at Slack, I've seen some, some decline in the value, but, um, but I think, you know, when you work with a firm over time, they get to know your infrastructure. That's valuable as well. My ideal for, for how this works is, you know, you have a bug bounty and then uh, if you can staff it appropriately, you have, you have an internal red team. Uh, that, and, and the issue, 
the issue with internal red teams, and, and I'm starting to see this shift as well, is you really want thoughtful people on the red team. You don't want the, the sort of gotcha attitude on a red team that, that you know, historically is, is the case and, and might burn out the other side of the equation. Um, but it, it's really hard to find people that, you know, are good at finding bugs and want to help be part of the solution. But I, I think, you know, that's sort of my, if, if I could have anything, that's, that's what I would want is not even an external firm, just continuous sort of internal red teaming, um, but with a bit of a thoughtful mindset. All right. I'm going to let you go on this. Anything to plug? You guys are hiring. You have a speech coming up. Any presentations or tools people should look for? This is your time to, to plug what you're doing. Oh, geez. Uh, so we are definitely hiring. And, and Who isn't? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I, I sometimes joke that security is a is a 0% unemployment field. And, and I think that's probably largely true. If you're if you're decent at security, you can you can likely find a job in security. Um, and, and so much like much like a lot of the companies out there, we sort of have evergreen job openings, right? Um, I would encourage people, you know, if that that might be in development or operations to, to take a look at our SecOps team, which we're we're expanding again again this year. Because so you're, we're doing you're, you're a focused lot. on you're focused on finding that different mindset. Yeah, a different mindset, but also that skill set that that you know is very familiar with development workflows and and you know wants to stand up infrastructure and or write tools. Um, but we you know we also do a lot of, of traditional security work and and have great teams uh, that are under the security umbrella doing that as well. So uh, Slack.com forward slash jobs is is the plug for that. Um, and uh, as far as as far as other things, I mean we have. Uh, we have the open source Go Audit project, which we created. It's gosh, it's probably a couple of years old now. What is um, that? Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's written in Go. Obviously, it's a replacement for Audit D in Linux, mm -hmm. and we use it to stream the syscalls off of all of our servers uh, constantly. Right, so we get this data stream of every exec, every connect, all this stuff, and that's that's that data stream I spoke about earlier that that we analyze uh, constantly. For interesting activity and go audit go audit itself is just the mechanism to uh, connect to the netlink socket in linux and package that data up so that it can be sent to the remote endpoint so we we just hit some limitations with audit d that ships with linux and so we we wrote a uh, sort of a replacement for part of audit d uh, not the kernel side of it but but the user space side that actually delivers messages and so i highly recommend checking out that project and then um we <laughs> i i this is like the, the cheesiest thing, but I, I, we have a really, really interesting open source project that should be out in June or July uh, that that um, I unfortunately can't even discuss. What kind of tease is this? <laughs> I, it's, it, it, it's, uh, I will say that it, it's, it's, an area, it, it's an area that has interested me for a long time. It's, it's something that, that solves a particular need that we researched and just found nothing um, related to it, and nothing that, that really met these needs. And so uh, it's something that we've been using it at Slack internally for, for a while now. And um, stay tuned for it. Like, I'm, I'm I don't know, I, I can't say how, I can't emphasize how excited I am about the project because um, we've had a lot of work behind the scenes to, to, to make it real and, and 
yeah, I wish I could speak in less big terms, so I'll just stop. <laughs> but, come, come, but, to, come to Phoenix in September. We have Cactus Con here. It's a really fascinating, amazing place in September. Um, Cactus Con, we're looking for talks, so just I, listen. I'm going to make a note right now. Cactus Con, Call for Papers is now open, and this is the kind of talks we're looking for. Um, so maybe if, if the September time frame is there, uh, bring it in. Listen, I can talk to you for another hour because I, I have so <laughs> many things I want to ask you. Uh, you know, as it relates to just people getting into the industry, you know, fascinating uh, innovations and technologies that you're, uh, let's, uh, uh, let me end there, because we're an hour in, and, uh, uh, but, but I think, you know, someone in your position is, is, is the kind of guy I should ask, what, you know, you mentioned Canary Tools and Haroon's thing, what are the bits of uh, technologies and innovations you're seeing that is really, really intriguing and fascinating and people in your position at other companies should be paying attention to? Is there like a, a, a subset or a segment that you're really, really uh, zeroed in on? Yeah, so so I, I'm definitely a fan of what Haroon has done with the Canary stuff. Uh, we've, we've used uh, various parts of the canary canary ecosystem for a while now and I'm I'm a big fan. Um, as far as other things, so uh, uh, Dino Dizovi, uh, he uh, capsulate. Yeah, so so capsulate um, him and Dino and I have had a good number of talks because Go Audit uh, is a very similar type of thing. Uh, capsulate is is sort of an evolution of that and it's it's you know something that's probably more performant and and he's open sourced a good chunk of it. Um, but capsulate that that kind of thing is is really interesting to me because for me visibility is is the key. I mean, I you know even if we can't detect everything right away, I want to be able to answer questions as quickly as possible. So data collection from servers is is an area that I that I find really interesting. So that whole um, containerization space. I spoke to Brad Arkin on the podcast, and that was the first thing that popped into his head as well. Yeah, I, Capsulate is uh, is is quite cool, and and I'm a big fan. I, and and really, like it, I'm, you know, I, I hate to be negative on security vendors in general, but I just don't have high opinions of most tools out there. Uh, I think I think that they require they're either too general or require so much customization that in some cases you could just write it yourself. And so so I don't have any um, any you know really great recommendations out there. Um, but I think these, these components that allow you to build a pipeline uh, that you can analyze, those are, those are sort of the things that interest me the most. Yeah, listen, it's 2018 and we still haven't figured out asset discovery and asset management. This <laughs> latest Drupal thing. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the number of companies that were just scrambling to figure out where I have a Drupal installation, in what language, in what country, server, somewhere. It's just, it was just such a nightmare. And you know, this is a, we've had asset management companies forever and no one has gotten it right. And it's still a massive nightmare for companies. So I, I understand where this pessimism and existing security products come from. Um, yep. I, I don't and, envy and, you guys trying to sort that stuff out. And and one other thing that I'll plug just because I'm a bit, so, so I really like Chromebooks and I think you mentioned this earlier, uh, but, but I really enjoy working on Chromebooks because, you know, that sort of idea of automatic updating is, is the entire system, Modern, right? right? Yeah. And so I, I really like that, uh, under, under the hood, it's using the GR security patches for the Linux kernel. Like it, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of a best case Linux on the desktop right now. There, there may be very secure distros that I'm, I'm not, you know, that I don't know about, but 
overall, Chrome OS is a really approachable way to have a decently secure laptop platform. And I don't know if you've seen the Crostini stuff uh, that that is coming out of there, but basically they're they're expanding it. They added Android app support last year, and now they're adding uh, LXC container support. And so I'm really excited about you know sort of the the op the possibilities that opens up because the biggest issue with Chromebook adoption in at least in our organization has been well I use this text editor to do coding right right shit doesn't or, work yeah and so so the idea that maybe we can use and and I've tried a number of the Linux uh, versions of like Sublime Text and and all these to see if they work and they do and I think that opens up a really interesting possibility for 2018. So I'm hoping that we see more access to sort of general compute on Chrome OS, as long as it doesn't compromise the sort of overall security model. Thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate the time. Uh, hopefully we'll get to do it again one day when there's more to talk about. I have so much to talk about, but we're what? We're now on four minutes in. So. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed chatting and uh, I'd love to do it again. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bishop Fox, the gold standard in software security testing, code reviews, and penetration testing. Visit us at bishopfox.com to learn more about the services we offer and check out the careers page to see what job opportunities we have.